Good morning, everyone. Thank you for being with us online today. Um, as we get started, I just wanted to share a little bit of an update about what's going on in 180, which is our student ministries here. And I just think back to Jeff, the youth pastor before me, would always say, I have the weirdest job. And I never really understood that. And I always would be like, why? You like run ministry, you preach, you, you know, plan activities, everything like that. And I never understood what he meant by I have the weirdest job. Until COVID hit. And uh, what we've done over this new lockdown is we're doing Zoom online small groups, but also handed out packages with a bunch of different activities. So far, we've handed out 44 uh, we have about 20 that are left to get handed out. Those are going out tomorrow. So if you haven't received yours, hopefully tomorrow I will get to that. Uh, but yeah, he would say, I have the weirdest job and I never got it until in these packages, I made a card that says you have to do a weird photo shoot with your plastic dinosaur. And I got it. Youth ministry is the weirdest job but it is also incredible. So if you, uh, over these next few weeks, think about our youth and our youth leadership team, please pray for them. Just encourage them in what they're doing. Um, they're trying new things. It's a season of like throwing spaghetti at the wall and hoping something stick. So please just pray along with us as we uh, journey into these unchartered territories and try some new, really weirdly fun things. But uh, we are going to jump into the sermon now. So we're currently working through a series called, Does the Bible Really Say That? Uh, which is basically us just working through some of the common things that people say and that you may hear around church life and trying to figure out if it's actually true. So we've done, God wants me to be happy. Uh, God helps those who help themselves. God will never give you more than you can handle. Things like that. And so far we found that all of these aren't actually true, or at least not in the way that we think they are. So today we're trying a new one. We're looking at if you have real faith, you'll never doubt, and seeing if the Bible really does say that. So no, I personally think that doubt gets a bad name, and I don't think that's fair, because there are a lot of moments in life where doubt really is a good thing. And if you don't believe me, I'm going to provide a few moments in my personal life where doubt really proved to be a good and great thing. Uh, this is a, you know, a very emotional, personal moment for me to share today, but I'm ready for it. So my first example is being 11 years old at summer camp. So you know when you go tubing down the river and there's those black inner tubes that you use? Well, another camper and I thought before we left for the river, how amazing would it be if we each grabbed one and ran at each other and see who could fly back further? Seemed like a great idea, right? When has that ever gone wrong? Have you seen YouTube? Never. Always a surefire uh, success. But, you know, there was this moment of doubt in my head that was, is this really a good idea? And you know what? I ignored that doubt. I thought, you know what? I'm not going to explore that. I'm not going to look into it. You know what? It's not going to go bad. And if you have actually seen a video of kids doing this, you know that there is a winner and a loser in that situation every time. One kid bounces back a little but can catch their balance. The other kid hits it and it's like right on their head. I was the loser in the situation. And you know what? Doubt could have saved me a good brain rattle in that moment. One more example, if you are still thinking that doubt deserves a bad name and you don't trust me, that there's merit to it. Going into grade nine, first year in the high school thinking, you know, I need to look cool. What better than a fresh new haircut, a new look to explore this new season of life. So I decided, a pixie cut, never had shorter hair than my shoulders, 
what could go wrong with shaving my head? So uh, I you know, decided that I was gonna do that and as a very awkward grade nine with the roundest face still to this day, I thought it would look great. There was doubt that maybe, you know, PC cuts are amazing haircuts, but they don't look great on everyone. There was this small seed of doubt that maybe it wouldn't look great, but I pushed it aside. My mom would like everyone to know, she warned me, I did not listen. Mariah Bamber, if you're watching, you are another one that said, is this really a good idea? But I ignored doubt completely. I didn't explore it. I didn't see what the merit could be. So I got a pixie cut and it was the three longest years of my life trying to grow that out. And I looked like Justin Bieber for half of it. And it was just, it built character, but that suffering could have been avoided. You know what, I was thinking, maybe I'll show a picture this morning. I'm not even emotionally ready for that. Someday, maybe. But what about doubt when it comes to Christianity and faith? I've heard before, doubt means that you don't have enough faith. But is that actually what the Bible says? Does having doubt mean you don't pray enough? You aren't spiritual enough? You aren't reading the Bible enough? You aren't actually a real Christian? Maybe we have heard this before, and maybe sometimes we actually feel that that might be true. But doubt is part of being human. At times, I've doubted my relationship, my friends, my schooling, my career, my cooking for sure, my sermons, and myself. And with that doubt in my life, I couldn't imagine not also doubting my faith at times. More than this, doubt is an inevitable part of the Christian experience. This is why Jesus was continually rebuking his disciples, oh, you of little faith. In our Christian faith, sometimes our relationship feels very real and very strong, and sometimes we have a hard time feeling God at all. And if you don't have a Christian faith, maybe you have a hard time believing that what the Bible says could even be true to begin with. So doubt can come through a multitude of things. It can come through something that someone said, a book that you read, a podcast that completely shook your faith. Maybe you have an experience with someone that made you doubt. Maybe you had an imaginable loss or tragedy that has been left with you questioning, why would God let that happen? Here's what I always tell my students that I can promise them. God isn't afraid of your big questions. Furthermore, there isn't a single question you can ask him that he doesn't already have the answer to. If you ask the tough questions about your faith, you're gonna have the real answers for the tough questions about life. So we can assume that faith is the absence of doubt, but actually faith is the way through doubt. So then why are we afraid to doubt? Why do we have this idea that if you have real faith, there is no doubt ever? Having doubt in our faith can feel like we aren't a good enough Christian, we aren't doing enough, and maybe we're not enough for God. Doubt can shake the entire foundation of the things that we've learned throughout our lives and make us question if it's even true. For those of us here who are a very like black and white type person, right, wrong, there's no gray area, doubt can really shake us. But doubt comes in and makes us question the things that we believe and that we hold certain. It threatens the life that we've come to know. And even if it's not about faith, maybe it's politics, maybe it's family relationships, maybe it's choices, doubt can come in and make all of those things make us question, is this really it? So while doubt isn't always bad, doubt in itself really can be threatening to everything we know at times. And sometimes doubt will come in and tell us that God is a liar and our faith isn't real but doubt can also bring us to a new, deeper level of faith that we've never had before. Doubt can force us to dig deeper into God and the Bible and lead us to some of the greatest revelations that we've ever had in our faith. 
Madeline Langelkamp, I probably said that wrong, but a famous author writes, those who think they believe in God, but without passion in the heart, without anguish in the mind, without uncertainty, without doubt, and even at times without despair, believe only in the idea of God and not God himself. We don't find truth without first seeking answers. So if we look in the Bible, even the greatest heroes had doubt. The very first expression of doubt in the Bible actually comes in in Genesis 3, when Satan tempted Eve. So God had given clear commands when they were in the Garden of Eden saying, this is the tree of knowledge of good and evil and specified that there are consequences to disobedience of eating that fruit. He had one rule. But Satan introduced doubt into Eve's mind when he asked, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? He wanted her to lack confidence in God's command. He wanted her to doubt. When she affirmed God's command, including the consequences, Satan replied with a denial, which is stronger statement of doubt, saying, you will not surely die. In this story, we can see how doubt can totally derail our faith and how Satan will always try to use doubt to move us away from God. If we look in the Psalms, there's another really great place to see a lot of doubt and a lot of anguish. And looking particularly at Psalm 88, just pulling a couple pieces out. I'm overwhelmed with troubles and my life draws near to death. I'm counted among those who go down into the pit. But I cry to you for help, Lord. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? You have taken from me friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. This psalm is written at a time where the Israelites were uh, taken over by the Babylonians and God had promised them that the line of David would succeed and rule over the Israelites. But now everybody's confused and concerned because the Babylonians are in charge and they feel like God has not kept his promise. This is a psalm of anguish, of doubt, of wondering if God is really keeping the promises that he's made. So it's not only in our lives that we experience doubt, but the Bible is filled with these stories. It's not just us, it's humans throughout time. From people writing in Psalms, the Proverbs, letters, doubt is something that all of us humans experience together. Doubt is something that also tells us that things are not as they should be, and maybe sometimes it makes us feel like God is at fault. Maybe that that's where your doubt comes from. Maybe for you, you see injustices in the world, you see corruption, you see greed, you see the big hurts, and you have doubt that a loving God would let that happen. Uh, when we have this faith that we feel so certain of, when questions and doubt come in, we feel like our system is under attack. So when we have, we put up our guard, you know, we put up walls and we try to tell ourselves, we can't ask these questions. We don't want to think about that. If we get too into it, what if our whole world comes crumbling down? So we push them out. Our defense is to ignore the doubts and just hope they go away. For some, maybe it's different. Maybe it means that your community of faith shakes that core because they ask you tough questions that you weren't willing to answer for yourself. So you push them away and think if I walk away from the church that maybe I won't have to ask these questions. On the other hand, maybe we feel that our doubt isn't allowed in church. Maybe we have these big questions and we're scared that if I tell someone, what if they don't accept it? What if they think that I'm failing at my faith? What if I'm just dismissed and no one wants to answer it? It's not that we don't think Christians have the answer, but it's the fact that we put up our walls and say, well, we don't want to ask that because we don't think that they'll accept what we have to say. And that's when Christianity and faith starts to become irrelevant to some of us because we have so much doubt that we reject the faith to not have to ask those tough questions. But in Matthew 28, the Great Commission, it talks about doubt. 
The Great Commission came after Jesus was resurrected and all the disciples were brought together. And this is when Jesus says the classic, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all over the world. There's just this little detail in there though that says they worshiped him, but some still doubted. If any of you are big writers or readers or really into small details in stories, the little details matter. And this was put there for a specific reason. It's not just a throwaway comment of explaining the situation and kind of the feel of what was going on, but it's saying that there were actually some disciples that still doubted what was going on after the resurrection had occurred. They didn't mean that, like, it doesn't mean they didn't want to follow Jesus anymore or that they thought it was fake, but there was just this sense of questioning, is this real? Is this really happening? Now, I couldn't imagine seeing Christ die on the cross and then seeing the resurrection. It would be hard not to think, am I going crazy? Is this a trauma response that I'm seeing things? But I think that this small verse is there to say that where is help even for us today? To feel confident that even in our doubts, doubting can be hard, it can be painful, but it can make you feel that maybe there's something better out there. The Great Commission is a reminder that God is in control. And I don't mean that as a hokey God is in control because sometimes we hear that and it doesn't really help. That don't worry, God's in control, God's got you, there's nothing to worry about. But there really is a lot of things to worry about and a lot of concerns that we have. And even the ones that we know we need to let go of and give to God, they aren't easy to let go of. This mention of God in control is more of uh, not just a hokey God is in control, but a reminder that no matter what we do, no matter how much we doubt, no matter how deep we go into that darkness, there is nothing we can do to make God love us any more or any less. And God is never going to leave us. I think that's the type of faith that doubt leads us to. A trust and a stableness that no matter what, God is in control. Coming out on the other side of doubt will give you a faith that is rooted in trust rather than certainty. A trust in God that feels like it really can't be shaken. In the Bible, faith means trust, not just blind belief. We all put our trust in things every single day. When you sit down, you trust a chair is going to hold you. When you drive over a bridge, you trust that it's going to hold up and get your car across. We trust it not because we have 100% proof that it'll last. We don't know how it's built. We haven't done a thorough inspection. But we trust because we have good evidence to believe that that bridge won't collapse. Doubt isn't the opposite of faith. Unbelief is the opposite of faith, and those are very different. Tim Keller writes, uh, A faith without some doubts is like a human body without any antibodies in it. People who blindly go through life too busy or too indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight if she has failed over the years to listen patiently to her own doubts, which should only be discarded after long reflection. According to Keller, the strongest form of faith is one that's wrestled through doubt. It's one that we see in the Bible. So there are three stories of doubt that I want to go over today about three amazing people in the Bible. And that's Gideon, Thomas, and the father of the sick boy. So let's start with my man Gideon. If you have your Bible, uh, head on over to Judges 6. So God wanted Gideon to bring an army to take on the enormous Mennonite army. So Gideon gets his 32,000 men. Through a bunch of different things, God gets that down to 300 men. And so while Gideon was comfortable leading the charge before, now it's a little more scary. But at the beginning of this in Judges 6, Gideon has doubts. 
Could God really use one man to win against Israel's oppressors? And even more, that could God use Gideon? Could God really use him to do all of this? So he tested God twice before he would believe. So reading from Judges 12, Judges 6, 12, sorry. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied. But if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Is it not I who am sending you? So Gideon replies again, pardon me, my Lord, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the least in my family. So we're talking about doubt and life and everything like that, and we're all going to feel it. But if an angel showed up to me, and then God himself, like, himself was speaking audibly to me, I don't know if I would come back at God with a pardon me, sir, not once, but twice. But Gideon asked in verse 17, If I have now found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. Gideon doubted and he tested God. But Gideon needed more, so he tested God again. In verse 36, Gideon said to God, If you save Israel by my hand as you have promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you have saved that you will save Israel by my hand as you said. In both of these tests, God responded and gave Gideon the certainty that God was with him. And even with his doubts, God used Gideon to lead the Israelites to victory. So let's go to John 20 now. So flip on over there. And we're going to talk about Thomas. So Thomas became known as Doubting Thomas because he wrestled with the truth that Jesus rose from the dead. So one of Jesus' own disciples, someone who spent years witnessing his miracles, traveling with Christ, learning at his feet, famously doubted that Christ had been raised from the dead. Now note that an entire week had gone by before he saw Jesus, plenty of time for these questions and doubts to grow and gnaw at his mind. But when Thomas finally saw the risen Christ, his doubt fled. So starting in verse 24, now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the 12 was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and I put my hand into his side, I will not believe. So he's wrestling with his faith as he's as human as his label. But Thomas was not the only disciple to, res- to uh, wrestle with the truth of the resurrection. In fact, all of the disciples wrestled with believing when Mary and the other women came and told them that Jesus was alive. So in Luke 24, 10 to 11, when they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11 and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed like nonsense. It's important to, po- to point out the grace of God for those who wrestle with doubt. The 11 didn't believe until Jesus appeared to them. And then after that, he appeared again just for Thomas. God doesn't punish us for our doubts, but instead meets us where we're at and finds ways to show himself to us. And then one of my favorites, the story of the father of the sick boy. So starting in Mark 9, uh, verse 20. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground, rolled around, foaming at the mouth. 
Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered, and it has often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. I love this story. This father takes his son to the disciples of Jesus to be healed. And after that, they came away no different. So wrestling with his faith, he decides to bring his son to Jesus himself. But he asks Jesus if you can help. So Jesus points to his faith. Knowing he's wrestling with his faith, the father in this story responds honestly. And he says, as he cries out for help with his faith wrestling match, he says, help me overcome my disbelief. And in that, Jesus brought complete healing to that boy. Experiences of doubt usually will lead us to a deeper faith. And in each of these stories, God's response is not wrath, but patience. Far from punishing his doubting fathers or followers, God honors those who seek after him with earnest questions and doubts. The remedy for doubt is faith. And faith comes from basing your life on trust over feelings. Because let's be honest, my faith isn't a feeling. Feelings go up and down with our blood sugar, with how much sleep we've got, with just how we're feeling. If I let feelings take the wheel of my life, they would crash and burn it within days. One article I read put it like this. Let's face it. There is such thing as natural temperament. Like in Winnie the Pooh, some people are Eeyores and some people are Tiggers. That doesn't make the Tiggers the heroes of the story. It just makes them lucky in the serotonin lottery. Faith isn't anti-rational or sub-rational. It's a response to compelling truth. And Paul in the Bible keeps telling us to keep hearing this truth. No matter what doubts you may harbor, keep putting yourself in the way of the good news. Surround yourself with the Bible, people who love to read the Bible, so you keep soaking in what is true. God gave us the Bible as a testimony of his works in the past so that we will have a reason to trust him in the present. Psalm 7711 says, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. In order for us to have faith in God, we must know what he has said. Uh, once we have this understanding of what God has done in the past, what he has promised for us in the present, and what we can expect for, from him in the future, we are able to act in faith and in trust instead of our doubts. Life is full of valleys and mountaintops. And when you are in the valley and everything is uncertain, I encourage you to keep walking. Psalm 23 says, Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil for you are with me. The key word in this is walk through the darkest valley. The way out of doubt is to go through it, to ask the hard questions and to seek the truth. Keep going back to what you know is true. There are seasons where it's going to be hard to see God and where those doubts become louder and their arguments seem to gain a little more traction. But go back to what you know. Go back to what you have personally experienced. Go back to the truth that you have found in Christ. And if you haven't had any of those moments and you don't know God, and maybe you are still new to this whole thing, I encourage you to seek the answers for those doubts that you have. Because how are you going to know if a chair will hold you unless you take a seat? So if you're struggling with doubt, I encourage you to bring that doubt to God. 
If you can think of, if you are struggling to think of what to pray because you're so deep in that valley, here are three simple things that you can ask of God. One, ask for help. Two, ask for reassurance. And three, ask for evidence. God is waiting to help and reassure you. And the evidence for God's existence and the truth of Christianity is plentiful. And he wants you to know it. And he wants you to know him. We don't need to be afraid of doubt because the gospel can easily stand up to our skepticism and our questioning. Jesus could handle the doubts of the father of the sick boy, of Gideon, of Thomas. I promise you, church, he can handle yours too. So as we close today, I want to take a few minutes to pray. And in your own heart, whatever you're going through, if you are still new to this and doubting that it could be real, if you are a Christian for a long time that's had a situation that you are really feeling shaken in your faith, I encourage you to ask those three things. Ask for help, ask for reassurance, and ask for evidence. So as we close today, I invite you to pray with me. God, we thank you that your greatest desire is for us to know you. And as we have doubts and we have these hard moments, you remind us that those are opportunities for us to go deeper with you. So God, we pray today that as we come forward with our doubts, with our hurts and our hardships, you reveal yourself as you have faithfully in the Bible. God, we know that who you were in the past is the same today and forever. And we trust that as we move forward, you will continue to show us evidence of who you are and to reassure us in our moments of doubt. And for each heart that is heavy and hurting today, God, we pray that you just bring lift to that and that you bring moments of just pure clarity that you are with us. So God, we thank you today that we know that it is not our doubts that will bring us apart from you, that you can easily handle even our biggest questions. In your holy name, amen.